Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. We weren't prepared because we never imagined that this could happen. An attack by our own people fostered and encouraged by those granted power through the very system they sought to overturn. That is a lesson. That is not a conspiracy theory or a counter-narrative. We don't blame victims. We go after the criminals. Hey everybody, welcome in to another episode of the Can We Please Talk podcast. As always, I'm Mike Leon. And I'm Nick Saberi. On the program today, Ryan Riley of the Huffington Post is going to be joining us to discuss everything with January 6th related. Um, so excited to have Ryan on the program. First, before we get to Ryan, I say hello to my co-host, my partner in crime, Nicholas Saberi. Nick, how are you? I'm well, man. Things things are good. Things are good around here. You know, I'm just back at work for vacation, so family and I are good. Just looking to get back into things. Yeah, you've been looking forward to this episode. I know that because of everything. That's oh been, my goodness! All of the coverage of January 6th and talking to somebody that can actually break down the amount of arrest. You know where the government is right now in terms of you know processing some of these people. You've been you've been looking forward to this one. I have. I have been. You know, one of the things that's been for me just you know until recently you know checking out ryan's work was just that frustration about you know on january 6th like you you know i'm just glued to my tv set seeing what feels like an act of treason uh you know people running up on the <laughs> running up on the capitol causing you know causing a ruckus like this um and the question that goes through my head is like w- what's going to happen next like every single one of these people are they going to get arrested like what are we doing and then, you know, slowly over time, we're finding out all these morons, you know, film themselves. 
you know, and so suddenly that video is getting used and more and more people are getting popped. And, you know, from that dopey shaman to my man who decides to put his feet up on, you know, Nancy Pelosi's desk. Enjoy your time in prison, sir. That's right. Um, you know, so it was, but, you know, you had to, you had to get some appropriate context to understand, you know, from specifically the FBI's position, what is happening? Yeah, and to anyone who has been feeling the same way I have been about, you know, where where is the justice here? Are people being brought to justice? The answer is yes. Yeah. Um, and that's what we're going to learn today, specifically from our guests. But yeah, for me, just as an informed, you know, informed observer, just wanting to get clarity on what is actually happening at the FBI to to make sure that what the, the people who are participating on January 6th are being brought to justice. Yeah. So we played the clip uh, from Adam, Rep- um, Representative Adam Kinzinger from the January 6th committee and in the, in the opening statements that he kind of gave there um, when, when the officers uh, testified in the beginning stages of that committee. And that committee, uh, we're going to ask Ryan about w- what their overall goal is with this committee, what's still left for them in terms of subpoena powers and witnesses that they're going to call. But let me give out some statistics about January 6th. So the Department of Justice recently uh, said that seven months after the January 6th attack, there's been more than 570 individuals that have been arrested, over 557 defendant cases that have been unsealed. And of those, more than 200 defendants were, were indicted by grand juries. So far, at least 33 defendants have pled guilty. At least 25 have pled guilty to misdemeanors while eight of them have pled guilty to felonies, okay? Six defendants have been sentenced so far as of this taping. Uh, one defendant was sentenced to eight months in prison for a felony. Five others have been sentenced for misdemeanor charges. Two of those defendants were sentenced for time already served in prison um, while they were being held, you know, awaiting trial. And while two others were sentenced to home confinement. Um, one other person, uh, Anna Morgan Lloyd, was sentenced to three years probation and no jail time. Uh, it doesn't say here actually what she was charged with, but there was a lot of criminal trespassing charges that were handed out. A lot of, you know, a lot of these were misdemeanors. Like you said, people were in their cell phones, you know, they're on government property illegally. So a lot of that, um, you know, destruction of government property, conspiracy to commit um, were a lot of the charges. Uh, let me give you some more statistics, Nixon, and then, and then I want to get your, your take on this. The Justice Department said over 170 individuals have been charged with assaulting or impeding law enforcement, including more than 50 who were charged with using a deadly or dangerous weapon or causing serious bodily injury to an officer. Man, 170 people, that is a lot of people, folks. Um, So um, a couple of news agencies have reported on this, but they found that more than 150 officers were injured in the attack on Capitol Hill, according to the Capitol Police Union. So Nearly 235 defendants were charged with corruptly obstructing, influencing, or impeding an official proceeding. Obviously, they were trying to certify the votes on January 6th. Um, Approximately 40 defendants have been charged with a conspiracy. I'm going to stop there with the statistics because I I don't want to lose everybody here. But just showing the magnitude of what happened on January 6th and post that with the arrest uh, in connection with this, what the FBI and the DOJ have been doing to hand out justice, the, the penalties that have been uh, levied against folks, um, the charges that are still to come. There's been dozens of defendants within this that have served in the military, dozens of people that stormed the Capitol that day on January 6th. And I use the word storm. And I, I understand that we want to we want to we want to choose our words here carefully. But um, at some point within that, 
whatever the right is saying about peaceful protest, at some point in that peacefulness that they continue to harp on, there was a storming um, as, as shown on video. But dozens of those defendants served in the military, man. At least 61 of those arrested are current or former military members. That is a scary number to me of all the statistics that I that I mentioned that this many people that should have common sense and worked in law enforcement and should know that what they are doing is wrong still participated in it. Nick, uh, I gave you all those statistics. What's something of interest there, something that kind of caught your ear, your eye? Um, Give me your take on that. Yeah. Well, one statistic that I think, well, you didn't say explicitly, but the one that I find the most haunting is that we've had at least four officers die by suicide, um, which is a direct re- direct reaction to the events that day. You know, we've had people who've who've served, um, and you know, from the events of that day, were so traumatized that they made the ultimate decision to um, to end their own lives. Um, you know, this was this was nothing short of sedition. Um, I mean, you can get into the legal terminology all we want here, but you know, these are people who intended to to do harm, you know, and that was vocalized by the threats on former Vice President Mike Pence, um, other members of Congress. You know, the statistics you give point to just some startling realities about that day, and I'm glad that you did because I think that when we try to make sense of the events that day, I think it's important to really break down numbers the way you did as to really what's at stake. Um, and the politics aside. I do find it funny that the the party that is that is Blue Lives Matter, Mike. You just mentioned it's 150. If I remember correctly, you mentioned 150 officers um, have claimed injury from this. I think it's very it's not ironic. You know, the Republicans are hiding behind this. Had this been at a Black Lives Matter rally, had this been at any other event, um, Republicans are going to turn this around. I mean, for goodness sakes, how long did we have to hear about Benghazi? And that involved five people. So you know, we're talking about 150 officers. Blue lives don't seem to matter right now, do they? For the Republicans, they, they're going to downplay this. And then they've been, they have been downplaying this. And that's that's something I find offensive as an American um, to have people who've served, um, you know, who serve in their communities. You know, we've had an officer on this show. Um, you and I both know a police officer. Um, and. And it's stunning that there's just an utter disregard for what happened that day. Um, you know, for some those of you who listen to the show, obviously, you know, some of you probably heard the testimony, you know, from some of the officers that day, and just the pain in their voices of being confronted by the people that they're supposed to serve and protect, who are outright trying to do them harm. Um, it's certainly something that you won't see at a Black Lives Matter rally, um, and I just find it interesting that that's the reaction from the right on this. Um, but yeah, I always come back to just, just the, it's very different from nine 11, obviously, but I do again, January 6th is one of those moments that you remember on television playing out and you're just dumbfounded by what you're seeing. Um, and the more you're removed from it, the more clarity starts to set in. And really what we saw was nothing short of an attempt to try to overthrow a government, but it's led by a, just a collection of buffoons with cell phones and had it been actually a more organized attempt, we don't know what would have happened, but um, now we're seeing the ramifications of it in terms of what the FBI is trying to do about it. Yeah. I mean, we're going to find out more as the committee uncovers more, and this has nothing to do folks with political parties, right is right. Wrong is wrong. These people were all trespassing on government property, damaging government property, conflating it to what happened 
you know, in the summers when a man was murdered by a police officer now as found by, you know, the criminal justice system. Okay. And the subsequent protest that happened on private businesses is wrong. Sure. Looting is wrong, but they're not the same thing. Conflating the two is not going to help here. Okay. This has nothing to do with Republican or Democrat in terms of comparing those two. Both are wrong. One is way worse. One is attacking a government property building. Police officer died in that. Like, you know, no, no, no. police officers didn't die in the Black Lives Matter protest. We need to start saying what actually happened. And that's why I read a lot of these statistics before, you know, because I know somebody called us a liberal propaganda machine. And you'd be shocked to learn, you know, who leans which way politically on this panel excuse me, on this show between the two of us, it has nothing to do with politics, right? It has to do with right is right, wrong is wrong. Nick, when's the last time you stormed the Capitol? The answer is never. I'll answer for you. It's a rhetorical question. Uh, How many times have I stormed the Capitol? The answer is never. I was just in DC. There was a protest for Myanmar and what happened to the president there and the military coup that happened there. You know how many people stormed the White House in protest? Of, of, of a government tyranny that's happening in, in a military coup that happened in Myanmar. You know how many people stormed the protest, Nick? I'm going to answer for you again, rhetorical question. Zero people stormed. So like we need to start getting back to that. I want to give some more statistics uh, before we go to the break here, because authorities are still looking for hundreds of suspects. Justice Department said the FBI was still seeking the public's help uh, to identify more than 300 people believed to have committed violent acts on the Capitol grounds, including over 200 who assaulted police officers, man. That is a lot of people that are still out there that are, uh, that, you know, they're still searching for. Um, and FBI Director Christopher Ray said that citizens from around the country have sent the FBI more than 270,000 digital media tips, similar to what you mentioned, Nick. Uh, you know, the revolution was televised. It was on all their cell phones. And now we, we, we got a hold of them. Um, so, you know, this is, January 6th, if, if you're not as fired up as Adam Kinzinger was in that clip that we played at the top, um, something's wrong with you because, you know, it's it's an assault on, the, on democracy. Um, we're supposed to be better than that in terms of the way our government was set up with the three branches of government. Um, and like he said, we weren't prepared for this. We never thought something like this would happen. It's going to be something that's going to be taught in history classes uh, for years to come. Nick, you work in education. You know that firsthand. That's going to be taught uh, for years to come. Uh, After the break, the fantastic Ryan Riley from the Huffington Post, who's been doing a fantastic job covering all this. He's going to give us his thoughts, his takes, and obviously all the reporting that he's been doing. You can check it all out on HuffingtonPost.com or follow him on Twitter. Ryan Riley, after the break. Nick, today's episode of the pod is presented by HelloFresh. I love HelloFresh, by the way, Um, because if you, Nick, let me ask you a question. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like you are stuck in a dinner rut? Hell yeah. Well, expand on that because hell yeah. I don't know what that means. (laughs) You you asked a close question. (laughs) Like, what'd you eat? What'd you eat for dinner today? Well, today, today was pizza day, man. We just, we actually just, you know, made some pizza around here, but yeah, no, we followed this rut all time. I've got two little ones. So you got to account for them. My mother-in-law lives with us and her tastes are sometimes a little different than Laura and I. So you got to think about things are quick, things ready to go. And man, that's where HelloFresh comes in. I mean, that sounds like a dinner rut. Uh, You just look with HelloFresh, you're going to get fresh pre-measured ingredients 
with mouth-watering seasonal recipes delivered right to your door. My wife and I tried HelloFresh up here in New York. We love it. Um, skip all those trips to the grocery store because in New York, you know, you got small refrigerators, you got small cabinet space. I can't go to the grocery store and keep all this stuff. So I got to rely on HelloFresh um, to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. Nick, you can now enjoy cooking and get dinner on the table in 30 minutes or less, which gives you time to be late to hop onto this podcast and record with me like you always are. That's right. That's right. I'm calling you out in this. this, My man, airing out the laundry. See, and and what Mike doesn't know, though, is that Laura and I have gone through every meal service. We've done done them all. And HelloFresh has been by far our favorite one because to Mike's point, that prep time is real. 30 minutes, you're going to get some quality stuff on the table for your family. It's true. With over 25 recipes to choose from each week, there is something for everyone to enjoy. All the recipes are designed and tested by professional chefs and nutritional experts to ensure deliciousness and simplicity. Go to the link right now in our show notes, whatever audio podcast platform you listen to us on, you're going to get $80 off, including free shipping on HelloFresh. That's amazing. That? Uh, 80, let me read it again. Uh, $80 off 80 bucks shipping on HelloFresh. And it's like a PS five game plus $10. <laughs> I mean, only, you know, that math. I don't, I literally don't know that math folks. If you can, if you can add up whatever PS four games equate to $80. PS five. My man was paying attention. Oh, exactly. PS5. <laughs> that's how, that's how bad I don't know it. HelloFresh. You can clip all that out. HelloFresh, um, $80 off, including free shipping. Head to the audio, audio podcast platform show notes right there. Click on the link. HelloFresh, the number one meal kit. All right. Our guest today, as I mentioned, a big fan of this guy. We follow him on Twitter. And you should, too, by the way. Uh, he's a senior justice reporter at the Huffington Post. And that is Ryan Riley. Ryan, Mike Leon, Nick Savary. Thank you so much for hopping on the podcast. Right. Thanks so much for having me. <laughs> Ryan, uh, listen, we want to get into all of the, the news that you've been covering. We mentioned it but before you hopped on the, the program about the January 6th arrest news. You've been really following this kind of since, since day one on the ground. Um, what's the latest you can share with us in terms of not only how many arrests have been made, but who the FBI is still looking for, the latest with some trials for some folks that have been arrested? You've written about a bunch of this stuff. So what's the latest you can share with us and our audience? Yeah, I mean, so I think that the context of this is just important to remember that this is such a massive investigation. It's just enormous, and it really beats anything that the FBI has ever done before in terms of the scope and the number of of targets in this investigation. It really is just completely unprecedented. Um, And that's put a lot of strain on both the FBI and on the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C., uh, which is now working with a lot of U.S. Attorney's Offices around the country to sort of supplement their work because they really need the resources in order to be able to take up all of these cases. So it's really just an enormous, enormous effort. Um, At the moment, we're above 570 arrests. Um, And I think, you know, hundreds more to come. It's sort of to be determined, I think, where we're ultimately going to fall on this. Um, You know, personally, I know of a number of cases that are in the works. Um, There's some serious felony cases that are being uh, pursued at the moment. Um, But the FBI does take a little bit. It takes a little bit of time for some of these cases to come together. And more than I think often is necessary or that the sleuths are sort of comfortable with because there's just such a there's such a delay in a lot of these cases, even though um, 
there's you know all the information that you need is there and it's basically because of the bureaucracy there's just an enormous amount um, of bureaucracy that goes into these cases um, enormous amount of effort that has to happen behind the scenes and they're just really strained at the moment um, even though we have this you know you think of the FBI and sort of this Hollywood image as this crime fighting bureau but in reality when you look at the, you know things in re on the ground in reality it's a little bit it, it kind of shatters that image um, a lot. And I think that this is this case is sort of showing some of the cracks here, showing how it's taking a while for a lot of these cases to be put together, showing how you know online sleuths are able to put together a lot of this information um, in the time that you know it, that the FBI is sort of catching up to speed is often what we've seen in a lot of these cases coming out more recently. You recently had a Twitter, Ryan, exchange with someone, um, a capital stormer who had said his head, quote unquote, wasn't on straight and he was caught up in the moment. Um, and I think about that with the recent story you wrote about Scott Fairlam, who had turned mm -hmm. himself in. Are you in your reporting? Are you starting to see a trend of not necessarily moving away from people having to identify folks, but are more starting to come forward? Surprisingly, there hasn't been as many cases of that as I would suspect. I think that early on, the FBI was really trying to emphasize, essentially, you know, I remember very early on, we had, there was a very early press call, and uh, one of the FBI officials came on and said, you know, we will knock on your door, so you might as well turn yourself in now, right? Like, they were trying to get that up front and get those people to turn themselves in. Um, I don't think that's happened as much as they were hoping for or expecting, um, which is somewhat surprising because if you walked in there with a cell phone, I think that eventually they're going to get to you, right? There's there's a lot of ways people can get caught here, but I don't think that that paid off as much as they're expecting. There have been some cases where people have lawyered up and then they've approached uh, the FBI or or the feds and said, okay, you know, let's make a deal. Those cases, I think, in some cases maybe aren't as much of a priority because you know they figured if you came up front, you're not as much of an ongoing threat. Um, but it's really tough to figure out the logic and the strategy that the FBI has behind the scenes here, because it's not as though there's a ton of, it doesn't seem as though from the outside that there's a ton of thought in terms of prioritizing cases, because there's a number of people out there who are real threats and should be arrested soon, but those cases are kind of being sat on. And a lot of this you have to remember is just a result of the way that the FBI is set up in terms of the field offices, because there's a number of different field offices all across the country that all have different priority tracks, all have different personnel, um, all have you know their own um, their own personalized workloads. So there's it's not as though right now they're saying okay these are the most serious cases we're going to take those out first. What you're getting is sort of a mixed bag of both very serious cases, the felony ones, as well as those cases that aren't so serious and are just essentially someone who walked into the Capitol um, during the attack, but maybe wasn't involved in violence and maybe wasn't aware fully of what, of of how bad things had gotten. Um, that's obviously a number of defendants who have made that case, but. Um, yeah, it's it's really from the outside. I would certainly seem it's. I would understand why the public would be confused about the FBI's approach to this, just because it seems very all over the board. And I think that's probably a fair criticism. It's basically because the way the FBI is set up. So the FBI is investigating, um, obviously, and making arrests off of this. And so subsequent, I want to ask you about the January sixth committee, um, and and. A lot hasn't been made ever since the, I, I guess, the first press conference and the opening statements by the 
by the uh, police officers. I haven't seen too much coverage and attention on the committee. So what's the latest you can give us on the January 6th committee, their investigations, where they may go with subpoenas, witnesses upcoming? Yeah, I think that one thing with the January 6th um, committee is going to be really interesting is where they draw the line in terms of those ongoing cases. Because there is this ongoing case where if the if the Justice Department wishes to, they can make the case that we can't turn over this information because it's part of an ongoing investigation. I don't think that's going to be as much of an issue, and it hasn't been as much of an issue so far um, in the lead on information about the lead up to January 6th when it comes to um, things that they, they are interested in looking at in terms of the pressure that uh, that Donald Trump was putting on the Justice Department to basically overturn the election. Um, that hasn't been a holdup so far. But I think in terms of these individual cases after January 6th, it might get a little bit messier um, in terms of what they want to, they'll be allowed to or will be willing to turn over because they're going to be very worried about how these cases that are ongoing against these more than 570 defendants, how that's all going to be impacted by that. Um, and it's something that I think they're going to be very conscious of because if there's information that's released through the January 6 uh, select committee, that could be some way impact an ongoing case, whether it be through pretrial publicity that's going to mess with the jury pool um, or whether it be just unfair to a particular defendant. Um, I think that's something they're going to be they're going to be sort of tiptoeing around during all of this. So it'll be interesting to see, I think, how DOJ decides to approach all that. Um, of course, with a bit more serious cases against sort of the key figures, right? Everyone's always interested in what's going to happen with Donald Trump. Is he going to have any criminal um, liability here? I think that that's something that they're going to be able to share more um, with the uh, the committee on about the lead up to this, because that's such a it's such a difficult case to make, even if there was a case to make um, in terms of federal violations or federal criminal behavior um, by the president. Really what's happening here is the people who acted upon, those sort of low low figures um, who acted upon, the people with the least power who acted upon what Trump was saying are going to end up bearing the brunt of the accountability in this, in this case. It's not going to be the figureheads like Trump and the people with actual power um, like some of the people who spoke at that rally who are ultimately going to bear the, uh, the criminal repercussions of, of the behavior, which they uh, seem to encourage that. Ryan, in addition to your reporting, you know, we've seen um, just as many people trying to come forward with stories as to what happened. Um, in your sense, though, from the reporting you're doing, has the overall narrative of January 6th shifted? And what I mean there is, you know, we've gone from like the shock and surprise of that day to now that political polarization. But overall, in your read and your reporting, has the has the mood or the tent the tenor sort of shifted in our understanding on what happened that day? Yeah, you know, I I I often like reject the idea of like you know both sides like right every there is this fundamental truth, but I do think in with regards to January six here I would it's a completely different category. But what I would say is that there's there's not enough understanding certainly on the right about the violence that happened that day. And I would say that they're all on the left to a lesser extent, not making a direct comparison, but on the left, I would say that there's not an understanding of people's experiences who might've been on the ground, who might not have actually seen what was going on. Because, you know, I mean, I would say I was probably susceptible to some of the same impulses immediately after January 6th too, where it was sort of this lock them all up mentality. But I think that there were people there who 
legitimately, I mean, not only did they not have any idea how the system functioned or what they were doing there, but they just had no idea what was happening in other parts of the capital. Um, I mean, you have to read, there was a case today uh, where an individual pled guilty to a, um, a misdemeanor offense. And it was really interesting because Judge um, Judge Howe, the chief judge in DC, was handling this case and was sort of upset with how the uh, the government was approaching it, thinking that they did not go strongly enough against this defendant. And essentially what she did was she got him to admit to the elements of a felony during his offense um, instead of just a misdemeanor, which was, you know, a, a, a incredible trick to sort of pull off in court like that, just to illustrate how, how easy it was. Um, but I think that like, and, and this defendant, I don't think was a good example of this because he saw those flashbangs going up. He went through that and he went inside the building anyway, right? He knew what he was doing, but he was trying to draw this line and say, oh, I didn't know I wasn't supposed to be on the stairs. Um, I do think there are a lot of people who were on the grounds of the Capitol who arrived after the fences came down, who maybe didn't know what was actually happening or what was going on, or just assumed because the whole crowd was there, okay, it's fine to be there at this point. And I, you know, you just sort of link up in that crowd mentality passing passing a fence isn't the most you know that's already been knocked down by a hundred people or a thousand people before you isn't the biggest uh isn't the biggest crime in the book and i think that that's something that you know people on the left should keep in mind but on the right this is something that i mean has just it's a whole different whole different history like they just have a whole different idea of what happened on january 6th that isn't bound to reality and they're trying to minimize um, the violence that day. And I think for, especially for Sluice who have spent all of this time going through that video and analyzing what happened and watching these agonizing um, attacks on officers that were brutal and violent and, and awful and medieval um, is something that is really tough for them uh, to comprehend when you see these, uh, these portrayals from the right of, oh, this was just a peaceful day. This wasn't anything big. Ryan, I want to stay on that because uh, Nick and I are both journalism grads. Obviously, you're on a podcast of ours. Um, <laughs> you're a journalism guy, um, you know, and you just talked about some of the far right, Louis Gohmert, Matt Gates, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, all going to that prison recently that was covered a lot by the far right networks. Um, how tough is it to cover something like that, you know, a, a stunt that's done like that, you know, in, in terms of what happened on January 6th, you know, you've been covering it, you've been talking to people in law enforcement, people that were there that day, like, how tough is it to cover that? Because you don't want to draw attention to it. But it's also like hurting your job, almost, because there are people, there's a siphon of that audience that is like, Oh, yeah, I believe that. Why won't they show us where the prisoners are? Because everyone shows up unannounced to a yeah. prison. Like, how tough is it to cover that from the from the journalistic standpoint? Yeah, I mean, one thing I would point out there, which was I found, I mean, I don't know, like angry. Like, it made me angry, but I also thought it was hilarious is they kept referring to it as a federal prison. And it's not. It's a it's D.C. Department of Corrections. It's like, yes, it holds like but it's run. I mean, you could argue that, you know, D.C. and the Capitol is a federal, you know, enclave, certainly it's it's the nation's capital, but it's not in the federal prison system. It's not run by the Bureau of Prisons. It's Department of Corrections. It's a whole different matter. But setting that aside, I mean, it is just frustrating, um, this story for me. And just, you know, that it just it really just poisons the well. Um, and it's just frustrating to know that there are people who have a very, very different idea of what happened in, um, in the Capitol um, and are just continuing to believe a lot of the nonsense that's being thrown out there about what happened on January 6th. 
Ryan, um, you know, this year obviously marks the 20th anniversary of 9-11 and our understanding of the event over time. We, you know, there's more that we understand about what happened. You have a book coming out this fall, you know, describing the events of January 6th. Is the effort, is the goal of the book to, you know, 20 years from now, you know, when we remember, and hopefully we do remember the events of the day, is your book hopefully in your vision, a text that we can maybe be able to sort of tether to, you know, to get a, just a really clear understanding of what happened. So it's not lost in political rhetoric or whatever, you know, nonsense kind of just sometimes empties out in the politicization of American classrooms, unfortunately, but where, or, or is your book meant to be something else? Yeah, well, um, I, I, it will not be coming out th- quite this fall. It's going to be due next fall. So hopefully it'll be uh, in early 2023 is what uh, we're shooting for. But the reason for that is, you know, not only do I need time to work on the book, but what I'd like to do is see some of these trials to fruition and see how a lot of these cases turn out and see this hunt as it as it evolves um, and matures. And, um, you know, a lot of these cases end up uh, coming about and are ultimately charged uh, based on what um, people hunted down. I think Broadly, what I'm trying to explore with the book is, you know, you made that sort of 9-11 comparison. And I think, you know, in the same way that 9-11 changed how we thought about national security, I think this is going to change how we think about uh, domestic terrorism. Um, Domestic terrorism is something I've been covering for a long time. And there's this just fundamental difference based on the law that's baked into the law of how we think about um, cases of quote unquote foreign terrorism and quote unquote domestic terrorism. And I think that that's often lost on a lot of readers, just the differences that are sort of uh, built into that into that setup. Because if anything is, cons- what basically happens is if any um, terrorist attack is inspired by, considered inspired by a, a designated foreign terrorist organization, which essentially amounts to, um, for the most part, Islamic extremism, um, that's in a whole separate category than domestic terrorism, which are far more over the course of the se- of the last several years have been far more deadly um, on American soil. Um, but there's just a different set of rules that are written around all of uh, both you know foreign and domestic terrorism. And for often, I think good reasons in terms of wanting to protect American free speech, um, you could argue as to, why those rules are okay to apply to quote unquote foreign groups. But there are a lot of important first amendment protections that we we wanna keep in place. And we've seen throughout the history of this country how poorly uh, the government has treated sort of disfavored political groups. Um, so there's a lot of really, really tough questions uh, about the government's approach here. Um, but what's happened is I think that we've often been uh, or at least the nation's law enforcement officials have often been blinded to some of the threats that we've seen coming uh, primarily from the far right um, that we've seen play on, on American streets, unfortunately, in the past uh, several years. And that's something that I think we really have to come to, gri- come to terms with and come to grips with. Because the, the fundamental thing with January 6th to me is that if you actually believe those lies, it doesn't, it's not that much of a mystery. If people actually believed that the election was stolen, that America is being swept out from under their feet, of course, some of those people are going to take action based upon it. Um, and I think that the failure to see that is a is a real failure of the uh, certainly of the FBI. It was a major failure, um, just a, a a failure of law enforcement in general to see that. And that's something that 
should have been seen on January 6th. You know, I talked to an FBI informant just after um, the election. This was less than a week after the election. This is when Trump was trying to make his big claims. Um, you know, he's, he's getting the ball rolling. The thing that we all saw that was coming before the election was indeed happening after the election. He was spreading these lies about a stolen election. And the FBI informant, you know, in, <laughs> predicted exactly what happened uh, and it ultimately led to January 6th. And he said, you know, he's going to lead these people to the edge. And then he's going to say, oh, I didn't tell them to do that when they actually followed through on it. And that's exactly what happened, right? We had this instance of all these people being led to the edge, led to the steps of the Capitol. And then when it happened, you know, we had the situation where the former president says, oh, well, you know, that's not what I support, or at least claimed that. Maybe he didn't even, um, didn't even distance himself from it in certain cases. And is now making out some of the people who stormed that building to be martyrs. Um, and indeed, what he has reported to have been said is that, you know, well, maybe these people care more about the stolen election than you, referring to the rioters. Um, I mean, that just makes sense, right? If you actually thought the election was stolen, of course, someone's going to do something about it. So it shouldn't be that much of a mystery what exactly happened. Um, and it is going to be this big pivot point for the government going forward that's going to raise some really big questions about the future of protests in America, the future of, of free speech in America, and the future of domestic terrorism prosecutions and surveillance in America. Ryan, uh, well said. Before we let you go, uh, I wanted to ask you, because you recently wrote about the anniversary of what happened in Ferguson with Michael Brown. Uh, you wrote a great piece that you could check out on HuffingtonPost.com. Um, you were covering a lot of this. You said that this, the Ferguson you know, protest kind of prepared America for this moment, especially what happened with George Floyd back in the summer of 2020. Um, give us some of your overall, overall thoughts and reflections as you reflect back and specifically writing that article. Yeah, you know, this was something um, I explored last year with uh, on the, you know, a few months after, um, after sort of these protests had taken over in the country. Um, and I, I just, it was something that I, I thought back in Ferguson being on the ground was really going to be this huge pivot point for America. And I think it was in a certain way, watching all of the structural things that had been set up after Ferguson and indeed all of these very prominent activists who had taken places and had been doing that work for six years, um, were able to basically be in a position where they could help educate the country about the history of America. Um, and I think that, you know, there is a, this quote I, I sort of ended the piece with uh, from Kayla Reed, who is this local uh, protester in the St. Louis region who has been on the ground doing things there uh, for the past seven years and is this, has sort of has started off as just, just another protester and has now um, sort of built this, uh, she's become a pretty big political force in the region and is actually um, somewhat of a kingmaker, I would say, even in the region for, for local um, politicians. Um, and it is amazing, like, you know, she basically says that Ferguson was the seed that it had planted this. And now we're all sort of, you know, uh, a better understanding of some of these dynamics within the country. And certainly Ferguson sort of laid that, that bear and, and exposed a lot of these um, inequalities, uh, especially policing to, um, to the nation. And then six years later and seven years later now um, has helped, I think, shape how Americans think about these issues and brought a lot of really key figures um, to the forefront who now are in a position to, to make, to make changes. Um, I think, you know, there's a lot of work to be done, but it is just incredible when you think about um, sort of where the nation is and, and what position they are, we're in now as compared to say a year and, a, and two years after 
um, after the death of Michael Brown and Ferguson. I think that now there's just a better understanding that a lot of Americans had, and that's taken a lot of work and time and education to bring us to that place. And it's still a long journey ahead, but I think that where we are now is certainly um, a byproduct of the work that we saw being done in the aftermath of Ferguson in 2014. Um, Ryan Riley, you can check out all of his work at HuffingtonPost.com or, or you can catch him on MSNBC. Uh, Ryan, you do fantastic work, man. I really appreciate you coming on the program today. Continued success and uh, continue you know, the good fight in terms of all the reporting on everything that happened on that day in our nation's capital. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks so much for having me. Nick, today's episode of the podcast is presented by the good folks at DB Journey. It's a Scandinavian brand that makes backpacks and bags to help people on the move stay ready for anything. How fitting, Nick. We just did a travel episode with a, with a correspondent talking about whether or not you should be traveling and if you do, where you go to. But DB Journey is the only luggage you need, award-winning luggage, Nick. Are you going, you, you've been to DB before? I have been, man. Look, I don't know for any of you people that are traveling with kids and it doesn't even have to be a serious travel, but like, I mean, I was down in Delaware with some friends and my family recently, you know, and DB stuff's helpful because you got to be able to have things attached. I don't, again, if you travel with kids, it's the little things like where's the snack bag and the diaper bag and all kinds of stuff. You know, DB is great because you get a chance to just kind of just have those things attached. It just makes it simple. You don't have to worry about bigger bags and all that nonsense. Just you know, just think utility, think, you know, think efficiency. And that's, that's where, that's where DB comes in. Boy, they're going to love that. You said that because with DB's patented hookup system, you're able to attach smaller products to your backpack, roller, and tote from the streets to the peaks. DB's gear is travel tested by some of the world's best athletes, adventurers, and creators. We're teaming up with them. So exclusively right now for our listeners, whatever audio podcast platform you're listening to, there's a link in the show notes there. Click on it. Enter the promo code when you're done at checkout, buying whatever you want to buy, as Nick mentioned. You put the promo, promo code POD10, and you're going to get 10% off your next purchase. All right, Nick? 10% off, okay? You can't use it, though, Nick. All right? That, actually, you know what? You can use it. You can use 10%. Right, there you go. There you go. All right. POD10 at checkout. DB Journey. It's time to move on. It's time to get going. All right. That was the fantastic Ryan Riley. Uh, I say fantastic way too much, by the way, but he actually is fantastic. But he was fantastic. Yeah, he was good. I mean, this guy, I'm telling you, go to the Huffington Post, check out all of Ryan's work, follow him on Twitter. He's got a really big following on, on social media, but he's been really covering, I mentioned this, all, all of the events that happened January 6th, like day one, he's been really on top of this for the Huffington Post. He's their senior justice reporter. Um, and I mentioned he's a frequent you know, contributor here and there on, on MSNBC, but he, he covers it so well because he really gives you nuggets of what's happening in some of these trials after some of these arrests that have happened. He gave you that story about that judge, you know, making sure that there was a harsher penalty assessed to the person um, that there was another judge, I believe, and maybe the same case that had mentioned that, hey, the government uh, should be charging more here. Like there's a there's close to more like half a billion dollars worth of damages that was done to the Capitol on January 6th. And so she's wondering why the government's only seeking, you know, restitution for like 1.5 million. So like Ryan's been really covering at the heart of it, 
like everything that's happened with the FBI investigating how they're finding these people, how they're making arrests, what's happening in the cases that the government is making against these people, the people that have been arrested, you know, where are they now, you know, in terms of like, are there misdemeanors or the felony crimes associated? So Ryan just does a great job. Nick, the overall topic of what happened on January 6th in our nation's capital and Ryan's work. Give me some of your, some of your thoughts. I think it's really important. You know, something I think about, you know, Mike, you and I are, are parents. Um, you know, I, I mentioned in the interview, you know, we're coming up on now the, the 20th anniversary of 9-11, which is crazy for us to say that. Um, yeah, my hope as a parent is what are we going to be able to point to in 20 years when the conversation of January 6th comes along and our daughters, um, you know, ask us, like, you know, do we remember the day and what happened? And and honestly, I'm a little cynical as to sometimes what may be what may appear uh, in the classroom, just as we're seeing right now about the politicization that we're seeing. Um, and I'm looking to find some what I would consider almost sacred texts, I think, to really help encapsulate what happened that day. Um, I already have Ryan's book sort of just in my head thinking as a possible as a really good source just to hand over to my daughters. It's like, you know, if you're looking for some definitive understanding as to what happened that day, here's a good place to go. Um, yeah, Ryan, I think doesn't, I mean, Ryan's reporting has been fantastic. I think something he brings up during the interview, you know, I don't know, Mike, where you are with your friends, but, you know, some of the conversations I've had with people is like, are we arresting enough people? Like what is actually happening? You know, and, and Ryan's reporting talks about the fact that you know, this is actually not as easy as we all thought. You know, the FBI, you know, big for a variety of logistical reasons, isn't just like banging on every door of like, you know, against 330 million Americans and just starting racking people up. This, that's not how this works, which is very telling, you know, when we think about, you know, how um, federal justice at the federal level. But, you know, Ryan's reporting points to what actually is happening, what hurdles is the Justice Department running into or specifically the FBI? you know, running into in terms of apprehending people um, as more and more people are getting arrested. What are the things that we're learning? You know, we're seeing people recently turning themselves in or people admitting like, yeah, I wasn't in the right place mentally when I did what I did. You know, so as we've been doing recently, having journalists on who are really just at the point of the story, you know, making it clear to lay people like you and I, what really is happening? And I thought Ryan does a great job of explaining some of those recent stories and just more from a historical context. What should our takeaways be of January 6th now and potentially 20 years from now? Yeah, you know, I, I saw through Ryan's Twitter account, obviously, that story about the person that was arrested saying that he and, you know, he just kind of got caught up in the moment. Um, he brought his son there, 11 year old. So he's like, this shows that I wasn't in that mental framing to like storm the Capitol. And it's like, you know, it's so many emotions go through right there because it's like you're bringing your child to a rally where tweets, uh, messages all leading up to this had said, prepare to fight. And so like, you know, if if it wasn't for Ryan's reporting, you know, we I wouldn't know about some of these things. So he does a he does a great job. But um, January 6th, you know, should not be belittled by any political party in this country, specifically the one that's doing the most of it from the Republican side of this, like it should not, what Adam Kinzinger said, what we played at the top of the program is, is really true. Like we weren't prepared for this uh, because we never thought that this would happen. And this needs to be a lesson for future generations going forward. So check out all Ryan's work at HuffingtonPost.com for this show. 
youtube.coms youtube.com you can watch the video clips of this nick smashing the button audio podcast platforms you know by now please leave us a five-star review and comment please okay i know you want to leave us a four-star review because of nick but leave us a five-star review please i'm begging don't come for the smoke leave us a five-star review folks um, don't want smoke. As, as always i'm mike leon offering smoke prevention give us five <laughs> stars i'm nick Ferry. we'll see everybody next time later Ring, no flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.